Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. Good morning, everyone. So nice to be with you uh, here this morning. Uh, your pastor, Chris, um, asked that I would come in um, in for him and uh, he gave me a text for for our time this morning and so this morning we'll be reading from first John chapter 2 verses 1 through 6 um, so I've been working in the schools uh, for the last 14 or 15 years or so and uh, uh, currently in the valley um, I work with uh, my son at my son's school he's in the fourth grade and uh, uh, boy, I really wish, if there's one thing I wish I could have done in this last 14 and 15 years is to write down everything that kids say. Uh, they say some of the best stuff, and I'm sure it would be a good bestseller, if not a good bathroom reader. <laughs> uh, I really appreciate how kids um, in their, their youngness, um, they speak whatever's on their mind. And in that sense, um, they're an example to, to even to me to learn how to speak the truth. Uh, so much of our conversation with each other is uh, kind of uh, wrapped up in uh, niceties, you know. But with kids, it's it's so refreshing because even when they're frustrated, they say. And uh, this morning's prayer uh, time with you guys really reminded of um, how we can speak to the Father in honesty. Uh, I praise God for, for the prayer time. My wife Jessica here is with us. Uh, my name is It Gachangak. I'm named after Tom Nelson, my great grandpa. My parents gave Jessica the name of, of my namesake, and her name is Kayakluk, uh, means old kayak. <laughs> we uh, have Isaac. He's nine years old. He's downstairs. He's in the fourth grade. His Yupik name is Ikitugok. He's named after my mom's dad, and he was pastor in the Moravian Church, but Ikitugok, wild celery. And uh, he's our little uh, wild celery of a man. He loves, uh, as, as boys do, um, he loves sports and to be real physical. Um, his younger brother is five. His name is Jackson. And uh, Jackson's Yupik name is Napakalra. My dad decided to name him after his own um, adopted grandfather. Um, and Napakalra kind of speaks of a signpost or a post in the ground. And for us, Jackson is, uh, is a miracle. Um, we needed help, uh, the Lord's help, um, even just to have Jackson. And so for Jessica and I, he's a signpost of God's faithfulness and goodness. Um, please uh, pray with me. But I would ask that as you pray, I learned and have noticed in the Scripture, the Scripture never says that you have to close your eyes when you pray. So instead I invite you just to pray with me with eyes open. Father, Glorify yourself and glorify your Son, whom you sent. Amen. Turn with me if you have your Bibles. First um, John chapter two, verses one through six. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the tr in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You know, I am my father's son. My dad, when he was preaching, he would use a lot of scripture. And even as I was preparing, I thought, man, I'm becoming my dad. Verse 1 says, uh, John says to his, um, to his believers, he says, I am writing so that you may not sin. John is echoing a pattern that can be seen in the Old and the New Testament. Turn with me and let's read about our pattern from Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Here, Paul gives us a, an insight to the pattern of Scripture that John is echoing. Romans 15, verse 4. This is Paul to the church in Rome. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. To what writing is Paul referring to here? Here, for us, I think we know the answer plainly. He calls it Scripture. He's referring to the Old Testament. And as we well know, they didn't have the New Testament during that time. But Paul says here that what was written in the former days is written for our instruction. It made me think of school and my sons. And why do we go to school? We are students. We go to learn. And for us here this morning, we must become students of the Word. Paul teaches that we are to learn also about hope. He closes in this verse that through the endurance and the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, Now these things took place as an example for us, that we may not desire evil as they did. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. That's from 1 Corinthians 10 verses 6 and 11. Here Paul was retelling how God led them in their wilderness wandering, but they chose to worship idols, to grumble against Moses and God, and they grumbled against God as well, despite seeing God's goodness as he guided them himself out of Egypt. It's interesting to me uh, to think about when I was first reading uh, these stories in the Old Testament, um, why would a people who had seen with their own eyes a pillar of fire leading them out of Egypt and a cloud by day, seeing with their own eyes God's presence manifested in the fire, in the cloud, after seeing um, the miracles that he used to free them from slavery, why were they so quick to grumble? Why were they so quick? to worship an idol. And it reminded me of my own life. 
because I'm just like Israel. Um, I struggle um, as a father sometimes to my children. I struggle as a husband sometimes to my wife. I even struggle sometimes as uh, an employee with the school district. Sometimes I'm late. Um, I've had many experiences, just like some of you have, in how God showed me his goodness uh, throughout my, my short time here on this earth. And yet, despite those um, miraculous things that he's done for me, um, I forget and I fail to remember. The story and history of Israel reminds us not to sin, sin's consequences and sin's danger. Paul tells us from his church, from his letters to the church of Corinth and to Rome, that these things are written down as a warning for us. Let's look at another pattern. Turn to Luke chapter 24. We're going to look at verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Luke 24 verse 27 reads, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Skip down to verse 44. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Here our pattern of the things that were written Jesus teaches us um, was preparing Israel to recognize Jesus from the law they were supposed to recognize Jesus. From the prophets, they were supposed to recognize Jesus. From the book of Psalms, they were supposed to recognize Jesus. And the three things that Jesus mentions here, that their Messiah should suffer, and that he should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness proclaimed to all the nations. Here we see that Jesus is telling us the gospel is taught in the Old Testament. And here is the hope that Paul spoke of. Have you ever tried preaching, teaching, sharing the gospel, using your Old Testament? Let's look at our third pattern found in the book of Joshua. Turn to Joshua chapter 8. And we'll read verses 30 and 31. One of my favorite teachers taught that the book of Joshua is the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. Some of you might remember that Jesus' name in Hebrew is Joshua or Hoshea. And that Joshua led his people into the promised land to conquer and that this became their home. And in the same way the book of Revelation teaches about how Jesus comes and conquers and makes new this earth to be our home. Joshua 8, verses 30 and 31. 
At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool, and they offered it on a burnt offering to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Here, the pattern found in Joshua about what was written is that Joshua follows what was written in the book of the law about how to sacrifice a burnt offering and the peace offering. Here in these two verses, almost everything mentioned is a symbol of Jesus to come. Joshua was once a slave, once suffered as a slave, but then he led his people. Jesus suffered here on this earth, but he leads his people. Moses, the great prophet of God, performed miracles, was God's mouthpiece. The Old Testament tells us that Jesus is the prophet after Moses. Here, the uncut stone, this one was really um, insightful to me because this was the first time um, that I had come across it. That here, the uncut stone mentioned as the altar for the sacrifice is a symbol of Jesus. Daniel 2 uh, verse 45 tells us that um, Daniel had a dream. And in that dream, uh, or maybe it was King Nebuchadnezzar, in that dream he saw a statue and it was made of all different kinds of metals. But he says near the end of that dream, there came a stone that was not made by human hands. And it came and destroyed uh, that, that statue. And that statue was representative of, of the kingdoms of the earth. And it was a symbol of how um, someone supernatural, that stone that was not cut by human hands, came to conquer the kingdoms of the world. And here in Joshua 8, the book of the law, says, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. That was where they were to place their offering. Here we can see that even in the simple act of offering something to the Lord, it's a stone of not made by human hands. Here we see how this peace offering, this sacrificial offering also is a symbol of Jesus. Because of his sacrifice, the scripture tells us, we have peace with God. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, and the clay, and the silver, and the gold. Here the uncut stone, which no man can wield it, is a symbol of Jesus. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The supernatural rock that no man had touched came to conquer so that God's kingdom could be set up. Let's look at another pattern from Exodus chapter 24. We'll read verses 3 and 4. For our time here, I called it the pattern um, because this was um, how God used his own hand uh, to, 
to write down. From our text, um, John says, everything that I have written was written so that you may not sin here. In Exodus 24, verses 3 and 4, we read, Moses came and told the people all the words the Lord, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Verse 7 reads here, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Verse 12 says, The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. Here we see from our text when John says, Everything I have written, I have written so that you may not sin. Here, the pattern is what God has written in stone was written for their instruction. Here we see Israel responds and says, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. As Yahweh's chosen nation and people, they were told how to live with commands written by God's very own hand. And what does John say in our text? He says, I am writing so that you may not sin. What does God say to Moses? I have written for their instruction. Here is the hope that Paul spoke of. Here, uh, as Ben Bruckner would say, he says, the Ten Commandments aren't laws so much as um, do's and don'ts, as much as they are of um, how people are supposed to live in community. Here is your hope that Paul is talking about, the encouragement and the endurance of the scriptures so that you would have hope. Here in the Ten Commandments is the hope of community, the hope of family. When you examine the Ten Commandments, they show in detail how you should love God and how you should love your neighbor. This is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, Then you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here is the hope that Paul spoke of. To live in community with each other. Faith was never designed to be independent and personal. You know, in our country, um, people are familiar with uh, the idea that I have my faith and you have yours. That for, for a lot of people in our country, um, uh, it's only what you believe. Well, that person believes this, but I believe that. Biblical faith as God designed it is not what you believe and what someone else does. Instead, faith is designed for you to live in a community, in a family. You're a son and a daughter in a kingdom. That's why I love the covenant stance on the word. They say we read the word together. I don't have all the answers, but maybe my brother Curtis can help me understand something.
Maybe my sister Andrea can help me understand something. Faith, as God designed it, is for you to be a brother to your sister or to your brother. Faith is meant to be lived in community. And in those commands that God wrote with his finger on the stone, it is a community of us responding to him, how we love him, and it is a commandment to how we respond to each other. Here is your hope that you are not alone. That even in your struggle, just like we uh, were praying for, those communities, they are not alone. And though you might be far away, you have the power of prayer. And prayer is powerful. These storms devastated these communities. And what does Elijah do? He has an effect on the weather because his prayer was that of a righteous man. And the book of James tells us that we are just like Elijah. He had a sin nature, but the Lord used him. You are struggling with sin maybe, and just like I shared with you, I do sometimes, but he can use me as well. Back to our text in 1 John. The second half of verse 1, we read that first part, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. The second half, John says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I'm grateful that John finished his thought. But if you do, the Greek word here for advocate is parakletos. Literally, it means one who is called to someone's aid. That word is used five times in the New Testament, and it's used all by John. Jesus used it in John's gospel to describe who was being, who was being sent to us after Jesus ascended to heaven. Jesus uses these words, Holy Spirit, Counselor, Spirit of Truth, and another helper. The word here is parakletos, one who is called to someone's aid. Here in 1 John chapter 2, John says our advocate is Jesus Christ himself. That Jesus is the one who is called to your aid, to my aid, to our aid. In essence, the Holy Spirit, Jesus is teaching, is another type of Jesus. Because Jesus, who comes to save us, who is the, our substitute, the one sacrificed in our place, here the Holy Spirit is another kind, one who is called to our aid. Jesus says he guides us into all truth. He transforms us. He is another helper. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 27. Jesus is called to our aid here. Hebrews 7, beginning with verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. I'll read that again. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting indeed that we should 
have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus always lives to make intercession for you. And I praise God for that. Sometimes I'll pray like this, Lord, thank you that your word was written before I was born. Because maybe like you, sometimes I, I, I doubt um, that I can still be used by the Lord. Because in my heart, I'm so performance-oriented. Uh, performance Sometimes, you know, I can only be, uh, I can only, my mind goes this way. I can only teach or lead um, if I am good enough or if I have been good enough. But the scripture says otherwise. Your life with Christ isn't about do's and don'ts and how good you are. Because if you use that standard of how good I am, you will never be good enough. You will never have the right words, the right prayers, the right things to do. The Bible teaches that Christ is the only one who has reached that standard. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8.26 John says in our text, we have an advocate who is with the Father. Jesus is your intercessor. Jesus prays for you. The Holy Spirit prays for you. That's amazing to me. And that's why I say, I thank God that your word was written before I was born. It was there before I did anything right. It was there before I did anything wrong. And it promises that I, because of what Jesus did for me, can stand in the Lord's presence as his child. The title Christ here in our text is a Greek word. In Hebrew, it would be Mashiach. In English, we say Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one, and it literally means to smear or to rub. In our text it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here, or in Hebrew, Messiah means anointed for a special task. In the Old Testament, people were anointed with oil, and their special tasks were these. You could be anointed to be a king for Israel. You could be anointed as high priest for Israel. You could be anointed to be a prophet of God for Israel. The New Testament tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is all three of these. He is prophet. He is priest. He is king. He was messiahed, if we want to use it as a verb that way, to be these things. In our text, his task is one who comes to our aid. He has a special task. He has many tasks. 
And if you read the Gospels, Jesus says, I have not come in my own authority, but the Father has given me authority. He says a few times in the scriptures um, that I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. Jesus says many times, I only do what I see the Father doing. He is the Messiah indeed. Special task to completely and utterly follow his Father in everything he does, in everything he says, and with the authority that he walks in. Do you know your special task? 1 Corinthians 12 teaches that each of us are given a gift for the benefit of our church family. In one place we are told that we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. You are anointed with a special task. You are given the anointing of the Holy Spirit for that task. Do you know what your task is? Our text says our advocate is with the Father. Turn with me to De Deuteronomy 32. We're going to look at verse 6. Deuteronomy 32 talks about God's desire to be a father. This is Moses here speaking to Israel. Here he says to Israel, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is he not your father who created you, who made you and established you? Isaiah 9 verse 6, speaking of Jesus' birth, Isaiah writes, His name is Everlasting Father. In Jeremiah 31.19, God speaking in sorrow says to Israel, And I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. In Malachi 1 verse 6, God says to Israel, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is, is my fear? We can really hear God's heart in these two passages in Jeremiah and in Malachi. I thought you would call me father and you would not turn from your sins. If I am a father, where is my honor? Luke 2 verse 49, Jesus said to, the parent, to his parents, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus modeled for us how to honor God. Many times in the gospel, he said, I have only come to do what I see my father doing. I only speak what my father tells me. And I only walk with the authority that my father has given me. Verse 2 uh, right after I read this verse and read from Deuteronomy, I just want to show you a video uh, from a scholar that I read of recently who talks about uh, Jesus as our Messiah. Um, but first, verse 2 reads in our text, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the world. Deuteronomy 33 verse 17 says this, this is Moses again speaking to the tribe of Joseph, giving them a blessing. He says, 
of Joseph's tribe. He says, a firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. Here the words highlighted I want to share are firstborn bull. In Hebrew the word is shore, and that refers to um, the bulls they would use as a sacrifice to God. So here Moses is saying from the tribe of Joseph is coming one who's going to be sacrificed like a bull. The second word here that I want to highlight is wild ox. In Hebrew it's rem. This ox was fearsome, untamable. No one could master this ox. In fact, in the book of Job, God mentions this rem, this wild ox, as one of the creations he is proud of. He says, can you tame him? Can you gather him together? You can try and he will not listen. There is coming from the tribe of Joseph someone who is not tameable. I like how C.S. Lewis uh, spoke of uh, the lion. He says uh, that he is wild, that he is dangerous, and yet Aslan is protector. I love that picture, and I think that's what our Savior is too. Our Savior is like a wild aurochs, untamable, powerful. And the third point I want to highlight from this passage here is that from the tribe of Joseph, this person who will be sacrificed like an ox, who is like a wild ox, untamable, powerful, he will have an influence on all peoples to the ends of the earth. Here Moses is prophesying over the tribe of Joseph of an individual who will be like this shore and like this rim who will gore the people to the ends of the earth. At this time I just want to um, show you the, a video uh, that kind of teaches about this, uh, this shore and this rim. The firstborn of his shore is Joseph's majesty. And the horns of a ram are his horns. With them he shall gore the peoples all as one, even to the ends of the earth. And these are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and these are the thousands of Menashem. Here Moses compares the tribes of Joseph to two oxen, the shore and the ram. But of course, it's not about oxen at all. It is really about an individual a hero, a descendant of Joseph, who will be Joseph's majesty or glory. And this hero is compared to an ox, or more precisely, to two different species of oxen, the shore and the ram. The shore and the ram are very different beasts. The shore is the boss taurus, or domestic ox. He is a bearer of burdens, a slave, but even more, Joseph's shore is the firstborn of a shore. In Israelite law, the firstborn of a shore was born under sentence of a violent sacrificial death, as we read in Numbers 18.17. The firstborn of a shore you shall not redeem. They are holy, sprinkle their blood upon the altar. No Israelite could fail to understand the bloody implications of being born the firstborn of a shore.
The rain, on the other hand, is quite a different beast. He is the boss primigenius or aurochs, the Eurasian wild ox. The aurochs is now extinct, but to those who knew it in olden days, the aurochs was a truly fearsome beast. Aurochs skeletons have been found standing two meters tall at the shoulder, with the tips of the great black horns rising three meters in the air. Julius Caesar wrote about them, saying, they are only a little smaller than elephants, but they have the appearance, color, and shape of a bull. Their strength is very great, and also their speed. They spare neither man nor beast that they see. They cannot endure the sight of men, nor ever be tamed. All were in awe of this monstrous beast. From Neolithic Lascaux to Babylon's Ishtar Gate, it ramped and roared its way through the iconography of the ancient world. Balam bin Be'or spoke of its splendor. Even the Eternal marveled at its truculence, and rabbinic tales of its immense size abound. Now, of course, the Re'em, unlike Cousin Shor, did not fear violent death. Few would meddle with it, nor had it any place at all in Israel's sacrificial cult. So there is a total contrast between the firstborn of Ashur and a Re'em. What one is, the other is not. One is lowly, enslaved, and bound to slaughter. The other is sovereign, free, and bound to life. Therefore, Joseph Shor and Re'em represent one individual who is to undergo transformation. But even in his lowly state, Joseph Shaw was intrinsically glorious. As it is said, he is Joseph's majesty. And that is why he is finally transformed and given the majestic horns of a ram. And being crowned with the horns of the ram, the humble Shaw becomes the ram. Now, this isn't just my own idea. Here is First Enoch 90, dating from the 2nd century BC, which says, And I saw that a white bull was born, with large horns, and all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air feared him and made petition to him all the time. And I saw till all their generations were transformed, and they all became white bulls, and the first among them became an aurochs. The aurochs was a great beast, and had great black horns on its head, and the Lord of the sheep rejoiced over them and over all the oxen. But how does the shore become the rain? How does one destined to sacrifice become triumphant? Clearly it's not by evading his fate. Dereliction of duty is not the hero's way. No, the path to glory must be through the destiny of sacrifice and death. Does this then mean some kind of post-mortem resurgence? Well, perhaps. In the time of Jacob's clan, the people of the Nile Delta already worshipped some form of the bull deity, Apis, whose earthly bull representatives were sacrificed and buried in the belief that they would rise again to divine estate. Likewise, in Ugarit, just north of the land of Canaan, the bull calf Baal was dying 
rising and ruling already in the mid-second millennium BC. So it seems quite likely that Moses was indeed speaking of the post-mortem resurgence of Joseph's suffering ox. But who is this hero of whom Moses speaks? Well, the easy bit is the horns. We are told plainly they are his tribesmen. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim and they are the thousands of Menashe. But who is the one who wields these horns? The rabbinic sages offer three answers. The first is Joseph. The blameless lad was forced into slavery, pierced by cruelty and buried in pits and dungeons. Yet his affliction gave life to Israel. Then he was raised to freedom, life and sovereignty. Yet there is one snag. The firstborn of Joseph Shaw cannot be Joseph himself. It must be someone else. So could the firstborn Shaw perhaps be Joseph's descendant Joshua. Joshua sprang from the line of Ephraim, from Joseph, and Joshua too knew lowliness and exaltation. Though he was an Ephraimite prince, though the sun stood still at his command, he did not join the rebellious, but he served Moses until he was appointed prince and commander of Israel. Like Joseph, his sacrificial humiliation gave life to Israel, and he rose to honour. Yet again, there is a difficulty. Joshua did not go the peoples all as one to the ends of the earth. He merely fulfilled his own remit, the conquest of the seven nations of Canaan. So there is, therefore, a third interpretation, and this is the most popular of all among the rabbis. The firstborn Shor is a Mashiach, like Joshua, who is yet to come. In fact, such a figure is implicit in the text itself, from the discrepancy between Moses' prophecy and the limited nature of Joshua's conquest. For while Joshua's conquest was modest in extent, Moses' hero was promised the conquest of the whole earth. And so the idea inevitably arose of a greater Joshua who would fulfill the promise entirely, namely, Messiah ben Yosef. And so Moses' prophecy gathers up and unites the prophecies of Genesis 3 and 49. Just as the seed of the woman is to suffer and then save mankind, just as the shepherd rock is to be buried and betrayed, like Joseph, before he rules, so Joseph's firstborn Shor is to suffer and die as a sacrifice before he reappears again, sovereign and free to conquer the world. So Messiah ben Yosef is no rabbinic invention. He is already there, dying, rising and conquering in the Torah Moshe Rabbeinu, in the great blessings of Bereshit and Devarim. I love how from this passage here, the gospel is shared even before Israel conquered their homeland. Moses prophesied and says, from your people will come someone who will be sacrificed, yet will also conquer, be untamed, wild and free, just like the Aurochs. And his effect will have an effect on all the peoples 
all the worlds. The gospel of Jesus shares that he came first to be given over, handed into men's hands, to suffer and to die and rise again, and then to come again as conquering king to reclaim this earth and make it new. Our text in 1 John 2 uses the Greek word terio in verses 3, verses 4, and verses 5. Three times John uses this word terio, to keep. It means to keep, to obey, to guard, to protect. And here in this context, it means to keep and to obey. And just like the be at the beginning of this message, John is reminding us here that everything that was written was written for our instruction, was written as our example, was written so that we may not sin, and was written that we might have hope. Here, John reminds us to honor and to fear God by walking like Jesus. The last part of our text in verse 6 in 1 John uses the word walking. He says here, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The word in the Greek is prepateo, and it signifies the trajectory of one's life. In other words, where is your life going? What is the trajectory of your path right now? Where are you headed? What path are you on? I want to close our time together by reading to you from Psalm 119, verse 105. I think this sums up beautifully everything that our passage this morning speaks about. Psalm, 10, Psalm 119, verse 105 reads, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Here the Hebrew word for path signifies the deep trench of a cart path. In other words, the path that's spoken of here is obvious. The trench of the cart path was inches deep and that is where the cart path would go. In fact, as long as the wheels were right in the trench, all it had to do was to sit there and be pulled and it would stay on the path. Surrender to what is pulling it. The psalmist says here, thy word is a lamp to my feet. Lamps are not like the lights we have today. These powerful spotting you know, scopes that we have, they light up the whole night sky. Lamps back then were held, and you could see only maybe a step or two in front of you, but you could see clearly that next step. And you could see that whole path so long as you kept walking, but it required you to keep walking. You may not be able to know what tomorrow brings, what five years brings, what the next hour brings. But our text this morning says, Thy word is my lamp. So long as you hold that word to you, you can see what your next step is. 
because the word here for path says it's an obvious path, clearly seen, unmistakable, so long as the light guides you. And just like the cart being pulled, all you have to do is trust whatever is pulling you. We're told many times in the Gospels that our power to walk in faith comes from who? The Holy Spirit. He is the one who energizes. Paul tells us, he says, be filled by the Spirit. And that word implies that you keep on being filled. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet so that I can follow the obvious and easily clearly seen trail of the Lord. And I hope you heard that this morning. Sometimes we forget because we haven't had our time either at church listening to a sermon or our devotions. Whatever it may be, we step away from the light of God's word. And we forget because life seems so hard. It seems so confusing at times. We don't know where to turn. We don't know our next step. But according to the word, as long as we hold it close, it guides your next step. And it shows you how clear and obvious the path is so that you can walk in it. And that is the Lord's call for you this morning. That your path would be lit up by the word held close to you. So that you can see, and like John says, to walk in the light of his word. Please pray with me. Lord, we are grateful that your word was written for us as an example to be our instruction, to give us hope, to remind us of uh, your plan. Long before Jesus came, he was seen as one who would come as a sacrifice, but then also come to conquer. Lord, your word guides us. You tell us to keep your word, to obey your word, to walk your word. And Lord, this morning we ask again for the help of your Holy Spirit as we learn to live as your children and to make you our home, that we abide with you. Lord, we are grateful for all those who have gone before us, uh, reminding us of how we should walk. Lord, we are grateful for the gentleness of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you that your Son intercedes for us, prays for us. Your Holy Spirit groans for us. Lord, even your Apostle Peter told us in his letter, he says that you have given us everything that we need for a life of godliness so that we can overcome this world full of sin. Father, for all these things we are so thankful. We pray this in the name of your Son who was, who is, and who is to come, our coming King. Now God's people said, Amen.